You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Welcome to Jewish Matters Podcast. Tonight we're going to go more in depth with the Parsha, part two. And the question is, are you allowed to deceive a swindler? Uh, Jacob, we saw in the Parsha, takes the blessing from his brother Esau by impersonating him in front of their father. And the question is, are you allowed to use seemingly immoral means to get back what is rightfully yours from someone who's taken it from you or who will take it from you? So imagine you're at work, you work in sales, and there's a big account which you're trying to close. You got the lead, you've been cultivating them, and your coworker inadvertently forwards an email that shows you one of the other salespeople is trying to take this account from under you. He's negotiating with them as well. Can you go into the com- com- company's database and change the date when the deal is going to be finalized so that the person who's trying to steal it from you thinks that they have more time to close the deal and you're going to close it before them? So are you allowed to lie? Are you allowed to falsify that information in order to protect what is rightfully yours? On the face of it, the Ninth Commandment says, of the Tenth Commandment says, do not tell a lie. So it would seem that the Torah is absolute about this. However, the commentaries, the oral Torah tells us that the Ninth Commandment is talking specifically about lying in a court of law, giving false testimony in a court, which is usually under oath. And so the Talmud quotes a different verse, distance yourself from falsehood to apply in general situations. And the Talmud discusses this at length, and there are certain situations where you are allowed to lie. For instance, to make peace between two people. Um, so that they shouldn't be fighting anymore. Famous story of Aaron, Moshe's brother, the high priest, who, when two people fought, would go to one and say, oh, really, he feels bad, but is too embarrassed to, embarrassed to apologize. And then he goes to the other one and says, really, they feel bad and are too embarrassed to, embarrassed to apologize. And the two come and they make up. Uh, now, uh, that... Uh, permits that uh, sanction to be able to lie for the sake of peace uh, has certain conditions to it. Uh, another famous story, uh, there's a wife who always would be contrary to her husband. So as he walked out to work, he would say, honey, could you make rice tonight? She would make lentils. He would ask for lentils, she would make rice. So one day tells his son, please tell mommy that I'd like rice tonight. The son knows what's going on. So he switches it and tells the mother, Daddy would like rentals. She makes the rice, which makes him happy, and the son thinks all is good. And the father realizes what the son's done, and he says, you know, you tried to do a mitzvah, but you cannot do it again. In other words, he can't be habituated to lie. So what do we do about Jacob lying, telling his father he is his brother Esau. How do we justify this? Is this allowed? And furthermore, after Esau comes in and the blessing's been taken, Yitzchak says, 
to Esau, your brother, Jacob, came with Mirma. Now, what does Mirma mean? Rashi translates it as wisdom. He came in a smart way uh, because Jacob had bought the right of the firstborn. But the Ibn Ezra, another commentator, says it means deceit. So seemingly, according to some, uh, Isaac the father has accused Jacob of being deceitful. Now, are you allowed to deceive a person who seemingly is a bad person? Esau did not deserve the birthright and the blessing. He, he sold the birthright, so Jacob is entitled to the blessing. But can he use subterfuge in order to get it? Do the ends justify the means? So, the Talmud addresses this in a slightly different context. When Jacob, next week, will meet Rachel, his, his future wife-to-be, um, he tells her, he, he asked the local shepherds, you know, where is, uh, who is she? They say, oh, she's the daughter of Lava. So, when he approaches Rachel, he says to her, I am uh, your, the brother of your father, Lavan, and I am the son of Rivka, your aunt. He doesn't say your aunt, but that's who Rivka was. So the Talmud asks, why does he say both things? If she knows he's the son of Rivka, why does he have to say he's the brother of Lavan? Now, he wasn't really the brother of Lavan. He was actually Lavan's second cousin once removed. Uh, they were cousins, basically. But in the Torah, we see that close relatives are called brothers. But the question the Talmud addresses, why does he have to say both? And they learn something from by saying, I am Lavan's brother. Rachel warns Jacob that her father might pull a switch on him, might deceive him. Why? Because she has an older sister, Leah. So... Jacob says, according to the Talmud, I am your, I am Lavan's brother, to say, I am his brother in deceit. In other words, I can be as deceitful as he is. Don't worry about me. I know how to handle myself with someone like your father, who's a trickster. And the Talmud says, can that be? She says to him, Rachel says, are you allowed to do this? Are you allowed, can the righteous engage in deceit, the Talmud asks? And they quote a verse from the book of Samuel that says, with an honest person act honestly, and with a corrupt person act with deceit. So seemingly this verse permits it. Now this verse talks about that God acts uh, with deceit for people who are bad. But the Talmud takes his verse and applies it to interpersonal relations and justifies or explains why you're allowed to act that way towards a bad person. Now, unfortunately, Jacob does get tricked. Uh, Leah is swapped in the night of the wedding. And, but we see that in the next incident with Lavan, with his father-in-law, Jacob will actually outwit him. Uh, he makes a deal after 14 years of hard work, that he can finally own some of the flock, and he makes a deal that any spotted sheep he gets to keep. So what does he do? He finds a way to breed the sheep so that the 
spotted flock increases, which is his, and the non-spotted ones are decreased. Not overtly, uh, that act is not overtly uh, cheating, but it's certainly not in the spirit of the agreement they made. But it's not overtly cheating. But now let's ask, can you overtly lie or cheat to someone who is a bad person who is going to take something from you in order to protect yourself? And this is the question. So the Talmud has three cases we're going to cite. First one in Psachim, the, the Mishnah on Passover. And the case was that a non-Jew was going to bring a offering in the temple, which was forbidden for him to bring. So what does the rabbi do? He tells him that he should ask for uh, the forbidden part. In other words, like the fat of the tail. Say to the person, when you bring it, and I like this part of the, of the animal. Now, the non-Jew is impersonating a Jew. He doesn't tell him he's not Jewish. But they're going to be alerted because he's asking to eat something that he's not allowed to. But if he's not Jewish, he didn't know it. So you're allowed to use deception to make sure he doesn't carry through his evil plan, his wrong plan. Another case that the Talmud quotes, uh, let's say you have tax collectors. And tax collectors uh, were notorious for being cheats. They would charge people extra taxes and then pocket it themselves. So they were embezzlers. Are you allowed to lie to the tax collector to tell them you have less than you have because you know they're going to overcharge you? And the Talmud seems to say, even to the point of making a vow, you're allowed to deceive the illegal tax collectors. That is the second case. And the third case in the Gemara Baba Metziah, 75, tells us that let's say you have hired a worker and they're working on a project. They're working on treating flax. And if it doesn't get done that day, they're going to be ruined. The question is, and they walk off the job. So the Talmud says, shockingly, you're allowed to lure them back with a promise of an extra bonus. They do the work, and then you don't pay them the bonus. You say, sorry, I was just getting you back so we could work according to our original agreement, which you broke. And the Talmud says that is permitted. And so uh, there are circumstances where one is allowed to use this deception. Now, the Talmud already says that this is only in certain cases. The commentaries say, the Shulchan Aruch says, that in this case you are going to suffer a big loss if the work was not done right away. Furthermore, you couldn't get other workers right away to do the job. So, in an article on this issue, Norman Fremer in Tradition Magazine says, sets out five criteria that have to be met in order for you to be allowed to use these means. The first one is that you have to know that this person has a record of bad conduct. In other words, you're not just suspicious that they might do something wrong to you, but you know that they're a person who does such things, like the case with the email, uh, that you got seeing they're trying to take the job away from you, or you see that your business partner has embezzled money off the books and you re-embezzle other sums as well so he doesn't get his share, um, 
or you know that they have a history of doing this and you suspect that they are going to do it. Two, um, there has to be adequate uh, motivation or test and testimony that they're going to follow through on the act, which case of the email you certainly had. Three, uh, you're acting only in self-defense after the attack has been initiated. Four, as we said, there's no other alternative to rectify the wrong that's been done. You might have even tried some other options, go to your boss, and the boss says, well, you know, best man win. Uh, and five, that um, that which is at stake is important, right? You're not going to use su subterfuge, use questionable means if the case isn't important just to prove your point. So those are the five criteria that have to be met. But if they are, the Talmud does seem to say that you're allowed to use subterfuge. Now, and even in the case of Jacob, impersonating his brother. Remember, he tried to say to his father, I am, and then your firstborn is Asaph. He tried to say the lie in a way which he could reformulate it as not such a bad lie. So, and we saw earlier as well, that even lying for the sake of peace, you're not allowed to do it in order to, uh, if it's going to be a habitual thing. So there are certainly very stringent uh, boundaries to when you know, one can use this. And what I would say is that every case should be evaluated on its own. And one should really ask a rabbi, a specialist in Jewish law, Jewish ethicist, uh, in that case, whether it would be permitted to do the thing that one wants to do. And I'll just end with this. And that is that there are a lot of swindlers out there, and a lot of people, especially in the workplace, people who undermine you, they undermine you to your boss. Uh, someone once came to me who's a lawyer, and he said in the area of law he practices, when you start having a case uh, against, and the opposition's lawyer will start bad-mouthing you in the lawyer community, hoping you'll back off and drop the case. So they start uh, basically uh, smirching your reputation and mudslinging. He said, what should I do? So I was a young rabbi at the time. I sent him to a rabbi who was older and wiser than I was. And the rabbi basically told him, <laughs> he said, uh, find another area of law to practice where you don't have to defend yourself in this way by using Lashon Hara back against the person, by defaming the person back to get them to back off. And this is a final discussion that the Talmud says. The Talmud dis uh, asks, uh, if you see a wicked person, should you try and take them on? Should you try wrong, righting the wrong that they've done? Especially if they are successful in what they're doing. And what if even people don't think they're wrong? People think that they look righteous, but really... They are dishonest. So, there's a debate. One person says, don't start it with such people. They're always going to be able to sink lower than you and use uh, more crooked means 
and more dishonest memes than you will ever want to sink to. So don't even start up with them. And the other rabbi says, no, you should stand up to them. It's wrong. You should stand up for what is right. So which is it? So the Talmud has two answers. It says, uh, one opinion is that really it's talking about you should take on that person when your cause is a righteous cause. It's not just for your own self-benefit, but they're hurting another person, or it's an anti-Semite who is doing hurting the Jewish people. In that case, you're allowed to take them on. But if it's not, be very careful because, you know, such people are very dangerous. The second opinion is, no. Uh, maybe that... Uh, both cases are referring to defending your own property. But the first case of saying don't take them on is when your merits are not so great. In other words, if you think that you are not so righteous, then maybe you don't have the merit to win out against them. But if it says you feel like you are righteous and you do have merit, then you can take them on. So, either way, though, the Talmud is clearly saying, be careful with such people, because dishonest, uh, bad people are often dangerous, and often will sink lower than you can in order to take things that are not theirs. And uh, be very wary of using subterfuge against them, because, uh, like with Lavan, he wound up out-tricking Jacob, although... In the end, the final scene, Jacob manages to out-trick him. Have a good evening, everyone, and I hope this is good.